Well, welcome to Journey to the Stage. I'm Brian Fraser, and I am so honored that you've tuned in for this very special episode. Before we jump into our conversation, if you could take a moment to subscribe, follow, or leave some stars, it helps to ensure that others find this kind of conversation more and more easily. So on June 22nd, 2015, the, the world lost James Horner, one of the brightest stars in the world of composers. Here's how the news reported it. If investigators are looking into the deadly crash of a plane believed to be owned by an award-winning composer, according to the FAA, the single-engine S312 Tucano MK1 went down in the Ventura County, Kern County line. Sky 2 is over the scene where the plane had gone down, and these are pictures sent to us by the Santa Barbara County Fire Department of that same plane coming up right here. The registered owner is James Horner, the composer for films such as Titanic and Braveheart. So far, no comment from Horner's representatives. In season two of my podcast, I was honored to have Sally Stevens and Ron Hicklin as separate guests on my podcast. And these two legendary vocalists have had careers that are just incredible. Those are great episodes. If you haven't listened to them, I would highly recommend you do so. I'll put the links to those episodes in the show notes so you could go back and do that. You might not know their names, but I can guarantee you that you've heard them sing many, many, many times. For those who don't know, Sally Stevens has written a wonderful memoir about her career as an actress and vocalist and vocal contractor, where she talks about singing with people like Frank Sinatra in Nat King Cole, Burt Bacharach, and many, many, many more. I'm reading it right now myself, and it's titled, I Sang That. You can get it on Amazon and lots of local bookstores. The link to purchase it on Amazon will be in the show description. And lastly, I apologize for some of the background noise you might hear when you record with multiple people at multiple locations, things aren't always what you'd want them to be. Along with work on endless streams of massive hits, they both sang on TV theme songs, top tens, number ones, commercials, TV shows. Both Ron and Sally have sung on an incredible amount of movie soundtracks with every composer you can imagine. And so we are going to focus today on their work that they did with composer James Horner, somebody who was taken from us at the age of 61, far too young. It's an honor to have Sally Stevens and Ron Hicklin. Guys, thank you uh, for coming back and joining me on Journey to the Stage. Thank you for inviting us. You guys have, have done so many movie soundtracks. What are some of the composers that you've worked with? I know John Williams and others, but what are some other composers that you guys have done work with um, over the years? Well, Danny Elfman was one of the earliest composers that I contracted for. Alan Silvestri, James Newton Howard, Mark Shaman, Jerry Goldsmith. The first film that I worked on was a film called How the West Was Won. It was the first Cinerama film. And oh, that wow. was Alfred Newman. And one of the last films I worked on was when I contracted some voices for Tom Newman, who was his son. Oh, so my. To, to look at that journey, kind of, is is pretty amazing and i i've been in touch with maria newman she does some, a lot of live evenings out in her home in malibu of music that she incredibly uh, composes and um but it just you know that that kind of gives you a picture of time span or something yeah now ron you you started out um in fact sally was was part of your team doing vocal contract work maybe for those who aren't familiar in the realm of film score what what exactly does that mean what what did you do and how did you do it? Well, what I did was, and this dates way back uh, when we decided somewhere amongst the singers that it would be better to have somebody in charge. It wasn't about the money. It was about not having the booth hire a bunch of individuals, stick them together, and then consider one person uh, to be in charge when they weren't recognized in charge because that happened to me a number of times. I'd be put in there with stars and other people to sing with that didn't even read music. And then they'd start talking to me from the booth and say, uh, Ron, can you guys, and I said, uh, this is ridiculous. Over a certain amount of three and up, we ought to have uh, somebody in charge. And they put the voices in there that they want to work with. 
And I always felt that you're no better than the group you put together. And so uh, if the group is is really a top flight group, then you can actually do what you intend to do and you can concentrate on your own performance. What we ended up with was a situation where you as a singer are a performing member of that group unless uh, age or sex prohibits you from being a part of that group. So that's exactly the way we worked. I always considered myself a singer. I also was probably the top contractor during my era. And it just it just happened overnight after your first number one record or something like that. People started believing in you and starting asking you to put things together. And Sally was my top girl singer, Sally and Jackie Ward to, to start with. Those two were the first two names I put down when I started trying to hire outside of the guys and we started doing mixed group stuff. The question you asked on uh, composers, I did a lot of stuff with Lalo, Schifrin, you know, uh, there's just so many. I'd hate to leave anybody out, but everybody that Sally was talking with, the beauty of working with those people like John Williams is their egos were so comfortable for them because of what they did and the success they did. So when they worked with me, they'd say, okay, Ron, here's what I'm trying to do. And they'd say, then you go ahead and do it because you did it better than anybody. Did you ever contract anything for John? What, what films? Oh, yes. Did I did oh, Hook. That's right. That's I did, right. yeah, I did things like that. So in the beginning, when Jimmy Bryant was, uh, was orchestrating for him and stuff like that, I did things where it was just me and, you know, doing solo work and all kinds of stuff. So this goes way back into the 60s. So there you go. That, that You know, what you were mentioning uh, about the, the contractor role, which you were explaining to Brian, um, that's that's something, there were some very busy contractors already doing that when we started, like um, Bill Cole. and Oh, yes. You know, and I think it was very early on when they finally they they set that made that position a covered union position because there were heads of music in those days at fox or mgm or wherever and they they were the people ron was talking about where they would just put a group of singers together but there were also people like walter schumann and ken darby that were well known for choral you know assembling of choral people and the contractor thing has been a blessing because Unless it's a woman hiring a group of men or a man hiring a group of ladies, you must be a performing member of the group. And that puts you out in the studio with the singers to communicate with the booth. It, it keeps the, everything from falling apart and going, everybody shouting out, you know. It's, um, it's a blessing. And the contractors get paid for that first job, but that extra fee doesn't continue if the work is reused or, or on residual. It's just you know, covers that first step of the way. But it's a blessing because obviously it allows the, comp the the contractor to be in the room as well. Sure. So effectively, you have a director who's working on a film and he needs to hire some or a producer and they need to hire somebody to score. So they're going to hire a composer, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner, which we'll be talking about. And part of that score has some vocal aspects of it. So then you guys as contractors, they would reach out to you and you would say, okay, you would meet with them and then kind of where would that go, Ron? So tell us maybe, you know, you're sitting down with a director or uh, a film composer. What's that conversation like so you know the kind of voices that you need? Well, first of all, it was just like in, in doing records. If I knew the bag, the musical genre they were trying to do, uh, then I would hire accordingly because what I wanted in my own career was success. I wouldn't be back if I didn't have that success or, or create that hit record uh, from a sound standpoint. So I've always said that our job was not to go in and, and educate the public on what they like. Our job was to go in and understand what they like in whatever genre we were in. So I would hire accordingly uh, with people who would, would have like talents and reach that demographic. 
So when some, when a composer told me what they were looking for, what the film was about, whether it was opera or this or that, anything, country, whatever it was, then I hired accordingly and we went in and we tried to reach that demographic. That was, I think, one of the keys to being objective for me and and hiring the right people to make sure that 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 project came out the way it should. Gotcha. So let's transition and talk about James Horner. Let's go to you, Sally. What are some of the projects that that uh, you uh, sang on with James? Well, most of the things I sang on with James were with Ron. I did contract, and I apologize for getting the titles mixed up from Glory and Glory Road, but I contracted Beyond Borders and Deep Impact, I think. And But the first time that I can remember working for James was a film called The Stone Boy, and it was very early in his career. It was about 84, I think. And it was basically just Tommy Tedesco and I. It was a, a very simple score that was performed on the Walt Disney lot scoring stage. And then um, Tommy did some overdubs of other uh, you know, guitar instruments. It opened in New York, it was up and running for about a week, and it was taken down. And I, I only learned that recently, that it actually opened in the theaters. I, I always thought it was just something that they did and then tucked away somewhere. But it was, I think it was taken down because the story was so painful, and there may have been some pushback about it. It was about a, a family whose young, uh, younger son had been out with his older brother, and accidentally shot and killed him. And it was the whole strife of what the family went through handling all that. So it, it never, but it was really, really an interesting experience, except that I didn't know James very well. I, and I'm, I wasn't used to being in a room doing live solos with a small ensemble like that. So I was, you know, pretty nervous, I think. Um, and I, I, I just remembered that James seemed very ser- serious and focused, and he, and he seemed like 21. I'm sure he was older than that, but, but it seemed, I think it was one of his early projects anyway, so that's a happy memory. Yeah. What about, what about you, Ron? What are some of the main projects that you either contracted for? Well, obviously, you sang on all that you contracted for. What are some of the main projects you guys did together? Well, I, I will give you a list right now, and then I'd like to talk about some of those things. Sure. Some of those have a story. But I, I will tell Sally, <laughs> just on crosstalk here, that the first time she worked for, for James was with me in 1981. I, I'm sure that's true. And uh, she did a mov- we did a movie called Deadly uh, Blessing with Ernest Borgnine. And, oh. and that, that may have been his first. That's the first time I saw him. I had uh, third, 27 singers on that. And the whole room was filled with percussion instruments and everything else. So it started there. And then, and some of these I'll come back to. And then in 83, we did Brainstorm. And Sally was on that. Then in 83, also, we did The Testament. Then we did Red Heat in in 88. And Red Heat, I'll get back to these because some of these really have a story. Then I did uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Then I did Glory. Uh, definitely want to come back to that. 
Then I did a movie called Once Around uh, with R Richard Dreyfus. Then we did American Tale 2, Sneakers, Swing Kids, Casper. Then we did Apollo 13, and there's a story there for sure. Jumanji. And then on the next project, he called me. I couldn't do. My own company was keeping me busy, and that was uh, Mighty Joe Young. And I, I said, I recommended some people, and, and then, uh, and that was the last I did for James at that point, and that was in 1995. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, wow. I had that as 98. Yeah, 98 was that, but the last one I did was Jumanji in 95. So I, I will come back to any of those and discuss those because, or uh, discuss a few of those because there's some really good stories in there. Sure, we absolutely will. Let's talk about first impressions. Sally, when you met James for the first time, what was your first impression of him? As Ron just reminded me, I had worked for him. Was it Deadly Blessings that was the first one? Yeah, right? Deadly Blessings and Brainstorm you had done before you did that. And you also did the Testament before that, too. Well, and I, this is kind of a personal aspect to my years. But in the beginning, before I started contracting, singers were the ones that were lucky enough to keep busy, I felt, were the ones that kept quiet, kept focused on the music, didn't interrupt the contractor, didn't speak out or try to draw attention to themselves. So that, that was kind of where I was in those days. Amen. And as a result, I didn't really, you know, a, a composer was, was the person that we were all in awe of, and he was standing there at the podium. And if I had a question, I would have asked Ron. If, you know, there was not that kind of interaction with the composers until I was lucky enough to start contracting some. And that changes all that. You, your connection is much deeper. Yes. But, uh, but I just remember, I want to say he was almost shy because he wasn't real outgoing with us, as I remember. He was just very focused on what he was doing, very businesslike. Mm -hmm. um, that, does that sound right to you, Ron? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say you're right on target with that. My impression with James from the very beginning was he was forever young. Yes. He was, and I remember him wearing clogs all the time. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. And But he was a very gentle person. Yes. Uh, if there was a, a rap on him, I don't find it a rap, but I found some of the musicians felt that way, is James was a perfectionist. Yes. Uh, that didn't bother me at all because I was a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wanted to I mean, We were good company with each other because when he was in pain, I was in pain. Uh, when he was happy and relaxed and, and doing his thing, I was I felt the same way mm -hmm. because I felt his uh, I felt his vibe all the time. But he was a very gentle person. Yeah. I never saw him got mad. I did see him once get hurt. And then... What was that? What was that? It story? was when, when I did Once Around. And we did a beautiful score. And he went in the, the booth. And it was just three of us. There was two girls and me. And you weren't available on that section. And it was something like we did on Sneakers. And we did it for once around, but we did it with a classical piece. And what what happened is, after a couple of days or two or three days of recording the score, he went in the booth and they wanted to dump all the music. Oh. They didn't like it. Oh. It was marvelous. It was marvelous. And James was hurt to the core, and they wanted to scrap it and start over, uh, have him start over with a whole different idea and I never I couldn't believe if I drank which I <laughs> didn't I wanted to say let's go get drunk yeah. you know? but but I did I didn't drink it back in those days or or now I don't for sure uh, but that was the only time I saw him hurt but there were times that uh, he let me let me really in that I was doing some things where you'd ask my opinion on what I uh, what we should hire, and if I brought something in from New York, it was fine with him. Uh, he'd pay the price. Uh, when I found out that 
that his mixer in the studio, and I, I shouldn't mention his name, but his mixer in the in the studio that he generally used didn't have the mixing ability that I did because of working with voices so much and in my own company. I finally went in the booth and asked him, can I take a hold of these these knobs here, you wow. know, the faders? And I would, he was working on with a soloist and I started putting that, Frank, what I called Frankensteining the solos together from different tracks and I put it together because Actually, he was using Sean as a mixer, who was a great mixer, except Sean only had one hand or something like that, and he couldn't begin to operate the way I was used to. And it was funny because James allowed me to do that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was a great trust between us. And uh, he was a wonderful man. He, I, he was always a kid to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I I was not in the control booth as you were as often. If there was a choir, we were in the in the studio, oh, yeah. and the contractor would be in and consulting and hearing the playbacks and stuff. But on the later occasions when I I did get to go into the booth, and I think I've talked with you, Brian, about this, I was astonished, and I never knew that it was James doing this. All of these toys that, that were all over the control group, the, the, the bubble lighting and the funny little animals and stuff like that. He, I thought, oh, the guys here at uh, Todd A.O. just really enjoy this stuff. No, James brought all those little treasures in. And, um, and after he passed away, his, his wife did a documentary and it shows, you know, she talks about all of these fantastic little trinkets and adventures and treasures that he had he was very childlike right well that's an amazing video and in fact i'll i'll find that and put a link link to that in the show description because you're right his wife sarah does take this short sometime after his death uh, Mm -hmm. a tour through his home studio yes and it is oh i'm i'm sure it is it is a remarkable collection there are not words to describe what that place is to some it is utter chaos because it's so many small things and trinkets and moving lights and flashing this and that but his wife said that's what brought him a sense of calming Mm -hmm. and it also was expressive and she talked about in fact he would even talk about how he he had asperger's which made it difficult for him to relate to people socially and so Boy, he that re- explains a lot. Yes, I think you're right. I never saw a bit of that. Isn't that strange? Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have known that. I just always felt what a warm person that, that he was. And I absolutely, I was in love with his music anyway. Uh, uh, some of the greatest, greatest themes that I've ever been a part of. And to this day, the sensitivity of, of his writing, it, I listened to, because I downloaded a lot of it when my career ended. I downloaded a lot of it, and I listened to it. And I said, listen to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm showing that somebody, listen to this. Listen how this ends, you know, like in Apollo 13. Oh. This was the solo trumpet tra- trailing off into the end. And I'm just sitting there, and it's killing me. Ron, it was such it was such a thrill for me, and it's it's one of my favorites at the sneakers when Darlene and I did the two. Yes, it's, and you were there with us. one of the easy, most fun jobs and easiest <laughs> jobs because what I did is I hired two people that were right for the gig and uh, as I say and all I had to do is sit there something I never wanted but because of sex uh, it was one of those jobs that, that I was 
not doing, but I was still bringing in the voices on. So I got to sit there and and be a part of that. And Marsalis and uh, you know all of the the soprano saxophone that he was playing, and he was using the girls and the soprano sax all the way through as his sound in the in the. And there wasn't a thing that James wasn't doing that he wasn't trying to establish a sound for, just like the whistle flute or whatever it was in in Titanic, these kinds of things. There is always a sound that he was identity, an an identity. And he would uh, quite often talk to me in advance about, you think I should get on you for this? Or do you think I should, you know, and start talking to me about those things. And I said, well, you know, and and as it was in uh, Apollo 13, he got uh, Annie Lennox to do that whole thing at the, you know, I, on the, uh, one of my favorite things, I said, well, people are walking over the popcorn on their way out of the theater. One of the greatest pieces of music is playing for like eight minutes, which was our end title on that with Annie Lennox and and, and our group and all of that. And it, I, it brings tears to my eyes. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful score. And we'll go back to that because I know you've got some remarkable memories from that. I, I think back to some of my favorite scores. I I got into film music because I was born in 70. So right when I was seven or eight years old, that's when Star Wars came out. And John Williams, I mean, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Captured, captured me. Um, so he was the first composer that I really got into, film composer. And then James was the second. And I have more James Horner soundtracks than I than I care to admit. In fact, I think I mentioned this when I had Sally on some time back that uh, my wife and I for our first dance at our wedding reception was to uh, his piece The Ludlows from The Legends of the Fall, which is an just an incredible incredible piece. So it's it's very it's very personal for for me as well. Now Ron, you well both of you were really on a very very short list of people who spent that kind of time with James professionally and, and to some level um, personally. And Ron, it sounds like you became kind of a, a trusted voice for him. It, it's one thing to become a contractor. Somebody's hired to do something. But it sounds like he would consult with you. That takes a trust. And for somebody who's used to being the, the guy, the composer, the guy, that's a big thing for him to be able to have confidence in you to be able to ask your opinion about something and run things by you that that's pretty remarkable about what you guys built together you know all i can say is it was my favorite thing period working with james because when i heard any of the musicians when i said about perfectionists and i and i said the same thing about myself uh sally knows because of a lifetime of working together that I started off in the business trying to to not be the person that screwed everything up. <laughs> that I was so concerned that I wasn't up to standard. And then as I as my reputation grew and my abilities grew, I was wondering how long can I do this before I get uh, somebody catches on to I don't know what I'm doing. You know, that kind of feeling. And then as you have one hit after another and you have this marvelous uh, thing going, you find yourself paying less attention about what you're doing and more attention about what everybody else is doing. And I used to say I'd put an earphone on, on one ear and listen to everything else that's going on in the room and try to find out, as I used to say, a skunk or a wart on something and say, we've got to fix this. Uh, and that was the perfectionist nature of me. And I would say, punch us in on the third bar of bar such and such and uh, on the end beat on that and, and pick it up from there. And everybody would sing into it and to tell the mixer what to do. And, and, you, and you were brave enough to speak up about those things, Ron, and that, that takes courage and confidence, too. I don't know how many times that I look back at my career, and I'm not going to spend this time here too, too much, but I look back on my career, and I'm very proud of what we left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, our situation was, our history was recorded, 
And when I listen to it back, I don't want to hear that stuff back that I wish I could have done over. So we did it at the time. And when somebody would say, that's, that's fine, you know, producers say, that's fine. So give us three more minutes. We can make it better. The, the relationship that you had with, with James is a precious one in that regard. He respected you enough and you felt confident enough that you could speak out. And I'm sure with other composers as well. That is something that I found myself tiptoeing around a little bit because I didn't want to intrude upon their authority, their, uh, you know, their, so. It's a trust factor. And I had developed it with James and what we could do if I told him, I think we can do such and such, and he would say, okay, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. And I'll get to a favorite story of mine later at the right time. But seriously, it has to do with the glory. But in any case, that's the relationship that I had with James. James wrote very long cues, very long cues, generally. We would be... Uh, on an eight-minute cue or something like that. And uh, if a flugelhorn flipped on, on bar 194 or something, he'd say, okay, let's take it again from the top. That's the perfectionist there. The thing that a lot of the musicians didn't appreciate is they didn't want to take it again from the top. They wanted to say, well, let's pick it up at bar 150 and, you know, and, and cut it together like everybody else is doing. But James wanted the, the flow of everything. And he was in his own world that way. And I understood it. And I was perfectly fine with it. So to me, the, the, the idea was you get the right people. You put the right people around you. If there was any genius in me, it was in, in objectively casting correctly. Wonderful. Sally, when you look back at, at the work you did with James, are there some scores that that maybe are a little extra special to you, maybe that stand out, that when you hear even today, it's it, it means something to you. Are there, are there any standouts that just have kind of stood the test of time that you love in particular? Well, you know, ironically, the film score that I loved so much of James is not one that we worked on. It oh. was The Field of Dreams. Oh, yeah. And that just melted my heart. And I, I took my dad to see that because I thought he would love it. He, he didn't love it as much as I did. But, um, but I, I want to hear uh, Ron's story about glory. I remember I very much loved doing, as I said, sneakers because we were right there doing the vocals live. And it, and it was that feeling, if you screw up, they got to start the whole cue over again. So that's a little uh, stressful. But, but it was a, a privilege to do that. That's a unique one because your voices are so prominent throughout the entire score. Because you're not one of many, you're one of two. And that must be a very personal a personal one. And it's beautiful. You're, you, you have a beautiful voice. I'm not... It was very special. And, it's, and I love it when I hear it or I stumble upon it, you know. And I remember Apollo 13 as being a very special session and how it all came together in the music and very emotional. Yeah, now Ron, you've got, we'll talk about glory after this, but you have a remarkable story that you shared on my podcast with you originally about being, recording that, of course, is a Ron Howard film, incredible score, incredible movie. I mean, my goodness, so well acted and just the whole thing, top to bottom, an incredible project. Share with us that story about uh, you recording that and, and how that has stuck with you all these years. I think I was doing Casper at the time with James. And James said, okay, we're gonna be doing Apollo 13. And he said, here's what I want you to get. Now, be aware of this. He says, here's what I want. I want 18 kids that can all sight read and have perfect pitch. No, Sally's only laughing because forget that. I mean, forget that. I, and yet nothing inside of me would have let James down. So what I did is I got the best kids I could get. And I had my own studio. And I would play a single part from the music on my keyboard. And I would give, give a cassette to, the, to whoever I wanted to sing that part. And I said, here's the deal. Screen Actors Guild won't let 
let you take a group like that, the kids, and rehearse them without paying them for a day scale. All right. Secondly, when you do have are working with kids, there has to be a, a, a teacher and they have to have classroom time during the session. And all of this is very expensive. It's almost impossible that you can't practice anything, you can't rehearse anything, you can't do anything. So I would I would hire a child, I'd give them the, the cassette and say, this is gonna be your part. And then uh, the next thing we know, it, I had 18 kids. And then I said to James, I said, I want Sally, I want, uh, you know, and I put different girls, about six of them or something like that, into the group to sing with the kids. Because now I'm dealing with my kind. I'm dealing with great studio singers. So I put them in there. They never rehearsed with them or anything. And then when James would run down maybe a 14-minute cue of, when, of the launch of the Apollo 13, he would sit there and say, okay, let's um, bring in the kids. And he'd been rehearsing the band over and over, the orchestra over and over. The kids have been in the classroom. They've never sung together in their life. They come out and you put the music in front of them. My attitude about kids is if their voice changed, they're not a kid anymore. They're, they're competing with us. If, so they have to have a, a childlike quality to their voice. Uh, usually they don't sight read. Usually nobody's having perfect pitch and if they did, I probably wouldn't want them there uh, <laughs> because we have to tune with the band. So I bring the kids in. I said, watch me. When I bring you in, you sing. When I cut you off, you stop singing and be very quiet. And so we got all the kids and and Sally and a few of those, and and they started. So, so I'm counting bars. James would have, you know, maybe 90 bars or something like this of all different time figures and sound design going on and everything else going on with the launch. And and I'm counting, 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 counting like this, and and then bam bring them in and this is purity and on screen what happens is is it uh the apollo 13 hits space and everything drops out except the purity of these kids cut down and that gentlemen is how we do that And it's just glorious. And, you know, and they've never sung together. And it's, so it goes like this. And then uh, I, I cut them off when they're at the right time and everybody is, is quiet. And when we were done, I, I remember Ron Howard standing there and they said, well, let's go in, in, in here, let's go in the booth and hear this. And Sandy Crescent was the female contractor for the band. Uh, for the orchestra, and she went in. She comes out, and all the mascara is running down her face. Oh, wow. Just, and Ron Howard comes out, and he says, this is my greatest day in show business. Oh, oh my goodness. And they, they come out, and, you know, I choke up now, because we went through this for three days. And, and James came up to me at the end of those three days and said, Excuse me, he says. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, he said, Ron, I thought you said this was going to be hard. Oh. And, and I thought, oh my God, nobody will ever know. They'll never know how much I care about doing that job for him right. Yeah. And it was wonderful. And wow. after this day, I, I mean, I got other ones that choked me up too. And then. The way it ends up with this single trumpet, almost a military thing that's just trailing off by itself, this lone thing. And I said, oh my God, the, the genius of this.
That's beautiful. Yeah. That is so beautiful, Ron. I, I'm so glad you you shared that. And it it shows, you know, when fans see a film and hear a soundtrack, hear a score, we have no idea the care, the love, the genuine love that has gone into that. And what you have just done, Ron, really to your credit, is you've put a human face to the beauty of that score. Obviously, it's James's work, but you look at every musician who played on that, every adult like Sally who sang on that, and those kids who sang on that, but the person to drive that in this case was you, and you helped really all of those things to fit together and to create a moment where somebody like Ron Howard would say, with knowing his career, I mean, really, he's had three careers, this is the greatest day I've had in show business. That is, that is outstanding. What a moment. What I, a moment. You know, it, it, when you mentioned three, three careers, my first movie was uh, The Music Man. Oh, really? And, <laughs> wow. and I was the voice for, for Ron Howard crossing the street singing something uh, as a kid. And then the next thing is all of my Happy Days career for 11 years with with Ron Howard starring and I kept thinking he's Richie Cunningham but Richie Cunningham was me during that period of time I was that guy uh, and, and then and then later with the third one where we're doing movies together and stuff like that yeah one little tiny thing about James and then a little bit about what Ron was talking about with the connection to the composer I can remember James at one point, he must have worked a lot in Britain or he went to school in, in England or the UK, but he used a term that was their term for a quarter note or something. I can't remember it now, oh, my brain's okay. gone. But a quaver or a demi-quaver. Demi-quaver, yes, a demi-quaver yeah. and a semi-quaver. And, and I think people used to kind of tease him about that once in a while. Or, but it was just something he learned because he studied there and that was in his head. But what Ron was talking about with the it reminded me of the, you know, the the, the first chance that I had uh, to contract for John Williams was a film called Amistad, oh and my. that was yeah. it was an opportunity that came because I had worked on The Power of One with Hans Zimmer, which was a very African authentic score, and Sandy De Crescent thought that it might be helpful on Amistad. So we met, and, and, and uh, I can remember looking at the film on a movieola with John in his office over on the Amblin studio. But we, we had many days of, of on-camera choir, I mean, uh, uh, mixed choirs. But we had one day of a 52-voice children's choir. And that was not all entirely children either, as, as Ron mentioned. Like you try to plug in women's voices who might help with the part clarity and stuff. And we did rehearse for one full day, and the kids got paid for it. So that that was the way you handled that, Ron, was amazing. Your your preparation with the kids would have been harder to do that with 52, but nonetheless, what you did was great. But but John, th this is an example of what contractors do, and and it's it's not something necessary that we get paid for, but for that film, John had written a solo cue. For, there was one scene where the, the, one of the slaves coming over in the ship, a young woman pregnant, loaded with chains, is sitting on the bow of the ship, and you can see by her face, this is not a ride she's going to finish. And she, this, the, the visual is that she falls very in slow motion back into the waves and the chains pull her down. And he had written a solo cue for that voice, but he had to had to have just the right sound, and it needed to be ethnic. But his music had more of a, a classical undertone than than Hans Zimmer's. And so I gathered a bunch of demo tapes here, and and he, he, they were all good, but they weren't quite right. And um, and I was in New York for meetings, and thought, well, I'll I'll audition the, some of the singers at Juilliard. That'll be fun for them, and. You know, so we did that, and it was fun for them. But not again. The tapes I brought back, nothing was quite right. And then someone told me that a, the opera director up at the San Francisco Opera had just hired some new young singers, and maybe one of those would be uh, right. And he put—I called him, and he put me in touch with a, a young lady named Pamela Dillard. 
and she was on uh, on tour at the time in the Birmingham with the, doing classical concerts. And I called her and spoke to her on the phone, and somehow I just knew this was the right voice. And she sent a tape, and John loved it, and he ended up writing two more solo cues for her wow. for the film, which he had not planned to have. What a blessing it was to be able to do that, to be involved sure. with that. But people forget, and I think today the young singers just, they think, oh, I'll be a contractor and I'll earn an extra 100 bucks or whatever it is. You spend a lot of time that you're not really paid oh, yeah. for. But the blessing is that you're part of that project. And right. you're, you're maybe if you're lucky and you do it good, you're part of the next project. I've never forgotten that because it was, uh, I got to meet so many times with him to, you know, have him listen to this sure. and that. I just wanted to interrupt to say I'm so glad you shared that because uh, I on that movie, I was just one of the singers that uh, Sally hired. And... Uh, I got to tell you, I appreciate that because nobody would understand that uh, what what the bottom of the iceberg looks like, uh, like those of us who have done that, who have been uh, trying our best to make this thing really special. Everything you're doing, make it special, uh, and and uh, and sometimes we just come in and and, and sing the song, and that's fine. Uh, we. We've done that. Yeah. Well, and I think what you guys have both shared makes it very clear that in many instances, I mean, obviously there were some, as you just said, Ron, where you're, you're a hired voice. You go in, you hit your cues. Thank you very much. I'll get paid later. I understand. But others, you were, you were actually part of, at least on, at some level, an important level, shaping the way that soundtrack came out. And both of what you guys have shared make that very clear that you were often more than just a voice. You were an integral part of that finished product beyond the singing. And that's, that's pretty remarkable. I think most people don't know that. So I'm really, really glad that you shared those instances. Yeah. Now, Ron, let's, uh, let's hear about Glory. Glory is one of my favorite scores. I've, I've had opportunity to, to see the, uh, the monument to the 54th back in Boston and, it is a very, very, very special film. I, th- I think that's really what helped Denzel to break out. I mean, it really is a remarkable product. And so talk to us about your memories of Glory. Glory is very special in my, my mind because uh, James f- first contacted me. It, by the way, it was the first time I had ever heard of or met Denzel, too. And to me, his performance just brings me to tears in that picture. Uh, in any case, I had a lot of reasons for tears in that picture, but in, in any case, uh, James said, first of all, that he was going to be working with the Har- Harlem Boys Choir, and could I augment that? And so I hired, uh, let me see how many, okay, I hired 14 of my black colleagues, and we went in and augmented that. Uh, that was the first call I did with them because they didn't have the bottom end in that group. And so we supplied the, the bottom end and then all had to fit. And it was so perfect for what was happening. Then James said, okay, I want you to get 50 singers. <laughs> and so I got 50 singers and we came in to where, where he'd written the cue it was about eight minutes long of them charging the fort, carrying the flag and everybody getting killed while they're doing it. All right. <laughs> so I had 50 singers that, that I put together. And what James had done is he told me, he says, I've written this in three different languages because I don't want anybody to, to recognize any particular language within it. So we, the cue is written in three different languages that we were all singing at the same time. Now we're all sight reading our part. So he re- rehearsed the orchestra and, and then we were standing on risers with all the cues going behind us on the screen. And James was watching the screen and hitting the cues that were marked. And so he said, okay, let's, let's, let's put one on tape. So we sang the thing 
Then James went in the booth. He was in there for an extended length of time. And he came out and he said, thank you very much. Good night. So I had 50 singers that did this wonderful piece, this classic thing, one take in three different languages, all sight reading it. And I, I turned around in my business-like manner uh, and said to everybody, give me your I-9s, your, uh, your contracts, make sure your W-4s are filled out, make sure everything's signed, and, and thank you very much, good night. I sat there for two hours in the studio, looking at every contract, making sure everything was right. And over that two hours, being alone while they're mixing in the booth, I started crying. <laughs> and I thought, everybody has a life. They go home, they have a family, and I'm sitting here doing something that is so important to me that it's done right. And I came to the conclusion at that time, I don't think anybody else on earth could have hired 50 singers, walk in there, and we sight read it, and, and have a perfectionist like James say, thank you very much, good night, in one take. And I just sat there by myself thinking, this is really something, when you, when you can do something like that. And I felt, I felt an endorsement by the whole thing. And then later when I saw the picture, I came out, walking out of the theater and I couldn't speak. It had torn me up. <laughs> you know, every one of those cues, everything, it just tore me up. It was just amazing. I'm glad you shared that. And it shows really what both of you have experienced on some level. And that's the, the inglorious aspect of it. In that case, Ron, your, your concern at that moment was for your vocalists. You wanted to make sure that everybody got paid properly. And it, in it, and it took you sitting alone there, making sure every T was crossed, every I was dotted, so everyone else was taken care of. And that shows really a level of concern that, that both of you have for the people that you worked with. There was a lot of love. It wasn't just transactionary. Oh. You guys really cared for the people that you work with. Uh, always. There are two sides to that coin. You know, one is you have to please the producer and the composer. The other one is always that you have to take care of the people who are making that beautiful sound for the composer, make sure that they're paid properly and they're safe. And I don't think I've ever done that in the studio following a session, but I have spent hours here at home going over everything yeah. before I submit it. Because you, you want to be sure that things go correctly and they get on the cast list and they all of that. Wonderful. Yeah, there's so much more to it. Yeah. So, so then you guys would have to turn in the nameless right because that eventually would be loaded into the film credit so really that was was that part of your responsibility well we rarely landed in the film credits <laughs> just oh, no, okay. right but, but really we didn't serve lunch we would have been served we, we would have been in the credits then yeah or brought the porto potties but you know that's changing that's changing a little bit the last couple of films that i saw they credited the musicians and i think they've started to credit the singers on some projects. As they, they should. They are yeah, massive, absolutely. massively important. I'm not telling you anything you guys don't know, but th of course, they should be there. With SAG, they have to credit, I think it's 50 uh, performers, they have to give screen credit. But so we, we fall far outside of that. But on an animated feature where maybe the voice cast oh, yes. is smaller, then they then they have to fill in, and then they have listed the choir on some of those older, some of the animation films. Well, not only that, the reuse uh, re reflects a lot of times how many people were involved in the cast, and some of the animated things because uh, there's very very few characters within it, like Casper. I remember Sally once telling me uh, Casper was truly a friendly ghost. <laughs> when she got her first residual from that, she called me. And I thought, that's very sweet. You know, well, she... the producers have to pay it, is it 4.6 or something percent of the after revenue, after box office? And that is divided equally among the SAG cast. Yeah. So when there's a smaller cast, we get a very much nicer piece of the pie. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Right. Well, and Sally, if you got 
if you got a residual for every time the Simpsons theme song played, you, <laughs> you'd be a billionaire by now. Because that song plays five times in my house just about every single day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, when it goes to screaming, I think I get three or four cents or something like oh, that. Oh, nice. Well, Isn't that true? And for those of yeah. you who don't know, it's uh, Sally is one of the three voices you hear saying, The Simpsons. So it's you and your daughter. And, um, and Danny Elfman. oh, and Danny Elfman, right? This is the three of you guys. <laughs> That's so fun. Well, just Thank as you. we as we wrap up our time here, just kind of the last question going out for each of you. Ron, we'll go to you first. How should we remember James Horner? You know, he's. It seems like so long ago that he's gone, but his music is still with us. It's such a brilliant catalog of music. How how should we? as consumers, as, as listeners, remember James Horner? Uh, you know, there's so many stories I could tell you. Uh, he was not afraid to venture into creating a p- particular sound for anything. Every time, it wasn't just a, a cookie cutter thing. Every time he cared so much that if, if we were doing Red Heat, he said, get me seven singers that, that are believably uh, in the Kremlin, you know? And, and so I would get 70 singers and we'd sing it all in Russian, you know, and, and everything else we would do. And it would open on the Kremlin, you'd see that kind of thing. Or brainstorm when Natalie Wood died and I watched the pain on him. She died before we were quite finished with the score. And she had outtakes to come back to do, you know, and it, and it never never got done. I, I lived through so many of those stories with, with James, and uh, I, I felt the sensitivity of him, but I really felt it in his music. His, his desire to create, to create a particular sound and a particular feeling for that movie, for those scores that he was doing uh, was obvious. And every time he would call me, it, I would think, this is gonna be a ball buster. This is gonna be hard to put it together in that manner. But it was like, it was that way only because he was so driven to try to make something special. And I was so pleased to be a part of it, but that was James, the, the perfectionist, the, but the, the beauty of the themes to me still, uh, when I hear Apollo 13 and I hear the theme and I, and, and I hear glory and I hear the theme or I hear any of these things that, that, that just jumped off the, the screen at my ears and said, my God, this is so perfect for this. Uh, that's the themes that, that I loved so much about James's music. And uh, to this day, I, I listen to it and I love every second of it. I can see it happening as well as hear it happen. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And Sally, same question for you. How do you think we should remember James? Well, I, I think for me, there, there was a magic quality to him in many, on many levels. And a magical, uh, and that magical ability allowed him to identify with the emotions or the, the story or the undercurrent or the whatever of the film and give it his whole heart. And, um, and the, 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 the magic that we hear, uh, the magic quality, like, like I was saying, the Field of Dreams, but every, every single one of his projects that's to me is what makes them so special is that he just had a magical connection uh and i think part of it was you know it's demonstrated in that room full of of magical things that he had that all meant something to him that that he, he connected with so much of life obviously and the the fact you know for me the fact that his journey ended in an adventure where he was piloting his own plane. It's heartbreaking, but it, I betcha it's not ever anything he would wanted to have given up, being able to do that, you know, and and, and the, the terrible luck that it ended the way it, it did. But he was, he was just deep and magical. 
Well said. Well said. Uh, Ron, do you remember how you heard of James's passing? I can't, I can't tell you the time. I can't tell you anything. I can just tell you the sadness that I felt. I can't. I, honestly, I can't. It was just overwhelming. Uh, by then, I had retired, and I just, when I heard about it, it wasn't inside the industry. I heard it like everybody else on the news, and I just felt sick over it. Because I really wanted, uh, because I loved James. Uh, I really wanted to have a relationship far beyond our our, our business relationship. Uh, he was somebody that I just uh, uh, was my favorite uh, of all. And you know, and I, 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 you were asking earlier. We did back rack. We did all these other things, and we won Academy Awards with music, and we did those things. And it was still this was my favorite. This was something that was so special to me. Uh, I will share one last story mm -hmm. on when we did the Red Heat with the Belushi and, and uh, it opens on the Kremlin and it had this, he said, get me 70 singers, this is all in Russian. And I had done the Hunt for Red October for Basil Polidor, it's all in Russian. So anyway, he said, out 70 singers. So I said, get me, get me a, somebody that can speak Russian and we'll, we'll do this thing. And it opened when I saw the movie, it opens on the Kremlin and you hear this massive choir, this massive choir. theater as I was walking out people saying my god those Russian singers are fantastic you know and and I'm thinking just a minute Jack <laughs> but I, I did say so but anyway uh, at the end of that three days or two days or whatever we did on that that picture the producer from Orion came up to me personally and this is what he said. So James had hit the mark. He said to me, he said, I want to thank you for your group because you added $5 million worth of worth to my picture. And I shared that with James. I said, you can send a check. No, no, but it was, it was nice. It was nice to hear how he hit the mark with everything he was doing. And that was it. So, uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, what, a, what a story. <laughs> I have nothing more to add. That's how close we were. Yeah. Yeah. And Sally, last question for you. Do you remember how you heard of, of James's passing? Was it on the news? It was on the news. Yeah. And it was just heartbreaking. It did just, I couldn't believe it. I was in tears. Um, I mean, I, I didn't even know he flew a private plane. I didn't know that about him. And, and and then and you and you hear news like that and you always think, well maybe it, he was thrown from the plane or maybe they just haven't found him yet or maybe they just found the plane but blah 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 blah. So yeah, it was it was hard. Well, the beautiful thing is we have so much incredible music to listen to, so much beauty he left, really for the world to continue to to listen to and to celebrate. There's so much beauty. In that I, I think of, you know, some of my other favorite scores like Braveheart. My goodness, what a stirring, stirring soundtrack that is. And uh, so we do. There's so much to celebrate in what James left us. And just a quick drop in here. I've recorded a very, very special interview with Sarah Horner. Sarah's done very few interviews since James passed away. So the time we spent together was very, very special. You will not want to miss it. It's immensely insightful. We covered James's upbringing how James and Sarah met in college, insight into his early years, the climb of success, the shadow of the Oscar, and so much more. 
So make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you're catching this episode so you don't miss when it's released. Now back to our interview. I cannot thank you both enough for joining me today. It's been a a real honor to have you, Ron Hicklin, Sally Stevens, to talk about one of my favorite film composers, James Horner. So thank you both very, very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Brian and Ron. It's wonderful to see you. I hope we can have a visit soon. Yes, Sally, I feel the same way. And thank you, Brian, for putting us together. Uh, we're still, we're still, we're still here. We're still, uh, we still care. It doesn't matter what stage of our career we're in. And I retired when I was 61, and I'll be 86 in December. So it gives you a clue. I'm still. Uh, I'm still sailing along on the glory of, uh, of 40 years of, uh, of wonderful things in the studio. Well, both of you look just absolutely wonderful, and I appreciate not only your talents, but the heart behind your talents. And I, that's something that has stuck out with me just in our conversations over the last year and a half or so. So I have a great appreciation for both of you. So, And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Uh, so the word can get out and more people can hear these great conversations. So keep make sure you keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage. And that is a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>